Well, hello there, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Scott Morris. This is another Fuzz on Film podcast, and I'm delighted to welcome you to it. I'm joined today by my good friend, Drew Tavendale. Hello there. So, it's June, apparently, and we've decided, as we often do this time, to simply talk about the films that have entertained, amused, or disgusted us over the past month. So, uh, with little or no linking devices between them. To that aim, I suppose we will just dive straight in. Uh, First up on the chopping block today is Weathering With You. Uh, Drew, what was that, and was it any good? Well, it's about uh, a period of cold wet weather that's allegedly summer so i'm quite at home in this film (laughs) yes if you're familiar with makoto shinkai's work you'll know that two things in particular interest him visually beautiful skies and rain (laughs) representations of both in his previous works representing some of the most beautiful things i've ever seen in animation his last film your name had the sky and what was to be seen there be a major feature of the story so I suppose it was inevitable that this film, Weathering With You, should focus on rain. The rain here is in Tokyo, which is in the midst of the longest spell of wet weather in recorded history. Amongst the other soaked inhabitants are to be found two teenagers, Hodeka, Katoro Diago, and Hina, Nanamore. Hodeka is a runaway, and while what he's running away from is never made clear, when we first see him his face is covered in sticking plasters, so we can probably guess. His attempts at finding work in the Japanese capital are not particularly fruitful until he ends up doing menial work for Keisuke Shunagure, the writer of a 40 and Times-like website. Hodaka's path eventually crosses that of Hina, an orphan who is raising her primary school Casanova younger brother Nagi alone. Hina confides in Hodaka her secret, that she is a weather maiden, capable of changing the weather in a small area. As you might imagine, in a season of perpetual rain, the talents of such a person would be in high demand, and Hodega helps Hina to create a business as the 100% sunshine girl, providing people with guaranteed sunshine for their special events. The future of the business, and Hodega and Hina's burgeoning relationship, begin to look grim though, as Hodega is sought by the police after being caught on video threatening a gangster with a gun, and the slightly more pressing fact that Hina begins to turn into water as she uses her ability more. Could be an issue, that. (laughs) While I don't find Weathering With You as satisfying a film as your name, it does address a couple of problems I had with that, as Weathering feels like a cohesive piece, rather than stitched together episodes, and while it once again has a this time less catchy soundtrack from Radwimps, the world's worst named band. (laughs) The music is subservient to the film rather than having the film seem to turn into a music video at points to serve the music. In a statement that is sure to shock no one, I found Weathering With You absolutely beautiful. With the incredible attention to detail and the acutely observed human emotions amongst the best I've ever seen. Like Shinkai's other work, Weathering is heavy on the melodrama and super intense emotions of teenage love, and it's a bit much at times. Though it is ameliorated by some keenly observed reactions and animation of the awkwardness and embarrassment that accompanies young love. The ending is the only true disappointment. Not that it's bad, just that it's so obvious and therefore unremarkable, and it's so your name. Perhaps part of the reason weathering with you didn't have quite the same impact for me. Well, unremarkable apart from the bit where he betrays his lack of knowledge of how sea levels and rain work. But, well, magic sunshine goddess girl, so I'll let it slide. (laughs) 
But if you like beautiful things, and especially if, like me, you're a sucker for animated water, then you'd be well served by checking out Weathering With You. Recommended. Yeah, if there is a running theme through the films we're talking about tonight, it's that most of them I kind of like well enough, but I don't really have a great deal to say about them. And that's (laughs) definitely the case with Weathering With You. Um, It's, as you say, absolutely beautiful and can't fault it on the visual aspects of it. The only thing that really slightly annoyed me was some of the vocal deliveries of the uh, teen, when, especially when he's at his, his most um, emotional angsty. It's, it sounds a bit overbaked, but <laughs> you can kind of forgive it given the uh, given what's going on and the medium that it's working with. Other than that, I certainly enjoyed this well enough, and it's absolutely beautiful, which is always a pleasure to watch. And the story's okay. And the characters are okay. And nothing else is particularly bad in it. But um, yeah, it's it doesn't have a lot of emotional impact. It, it does at a few points, but perhaps more the, the kind of smaller moments, as you say, the kind of more awkward reflections on teenage love, which actually kind of is quite well observed and perhaps a bit more easier to emotionally connect with rather than the overblown you know, sacrifices that happen at the end of it due to the kind of more supernatural elements of it. But yeah, it's... Pretty good. I would certainly advise anyone who's got any interest in anime should definitely be on the list. It's a very competently made film and, uh, yes, very beautiful and not an awful lot in order to knock in it. Uh, but yeah, it's. I can't bring myself to be all that excited about it. It's pretty good, but yeah, there's, there's something missing that kind of stops it being, you know, actually great rather than just being good. Yeah, I think the problem is that there's, there's not anything. I don't mean in terms of plot here, there's nothing kind of. What's a better? What's the best word? I can't think of anything better than magical. There's nothing like magical or special. Maybe special is the word. Mm. There's nothing quite special about it. I mean, that doesn't necessarily need to be. Nobody says it has to be. Every film has to be like a masterpiece. Yeah. And this is a very beautiful film with incredible attention to detail to the point where, I mean, yes, the computers are used in this and there are bits which are like pans and revolves and things created by a computer, but still it's hands-on animation going into computer and being processed there so it's a lot of work yes um it's computer animation so there's a lot of work too but uh, the painstaking nature of hand-drawn animation cell animation like that where it's gone to the trouble of adding in the brand name on a chopping knife yeah yes and- <laughs> A um egg mcmuffin poster inside the mcdonald's they're in at one point i'm thinking that's crazy. The amount of time it was taking you to do that. Why? Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, part of me thinking it's like loving all the attention to detail with the hotel signs and the billboards and everything. It's like, it's fantastic. I thought that you could represent Tokyo in drawing any better. Yeah. Without doing something kind of impressionistic or something where you're going for a different effect. But I'm almost wondering why did you spend that long doing that? You know, yeah. <laughs> you maybe could have found something better to do at the time. So that's good. Yes, uh, fair enough. Should we just crash onwards then? Let's move on to something that's absolutely not an extended Twilight Zone episode, Scott. 
Yes, uh, Vivarium, and uh, this I can't claim to know a great deal about Irish filmmaker Lorcan Finnegan, but I look through his non-commercial work, uh, and actually his commercial work is pretty strong as quirky commercials go. Worth a look on his website. Uh, it does show something of a recurring theme of isolation and the inexplicable, which certainly comes to the fore in Vivarium, in which we are introduced to Imogen Poots's school teacher Gemma and her partner Jesse Eisenberg's gardener Tom, who are looking to get on the property ladder. Thus, a visit to Jonathan Aris's Martin, an exceedingly strange estate agent who, against all logic and reason, they follow to an out-of-town development full of identical, identical homes. Martin walks off halfway through, uh, showing him around, but when Gemma and Tom attempt to beat feet, they only find themselves back in front of the same house. Clearly, something strange is afoot, particularly when burning the house down doesn't stick, it miraculously healing itself. Uh, by that point, it should... Perhaps not have been all too unexpected when a box is dropped off from nowhere, not filled with the usual supplies, but with a baby boy and a message, raise the child and be released. So, not that they suppose they have that much of a choice. Uh, they raise this rapidly growing weirdo with an overdubbed voice while dealing with the incredible mental stress that this imposes in a variety of understandably unhealthy ways. That broadly is it, plot-wise, for this film. And while there's some excellent performances from Eisenberg and Putz exploring their characters' reactions to this nightmare, in terms of the wider point to the work, I'm struggling to find one. I can't see if it's even really trying to say anything other than, wouldn't it be weird if this happened? And yes, it would be weird. It is weird. It's a weird film. And on the whole, a film I was happy enough to go along with, as it does take what seems like a very slight premise and find some new, relatively subtle ways to make it increasingly nightmarish as it goes along without escalating into an SFX sideshow, or attempting to give any real explanation behind what's going on or to what purpose, which I kind of appreciate at the same time as wishing that there was at least enough of a hint given <laughs> in the text to attempt to formulate those answers for myself without it just being wild mass guesswork. So, yes, it's not the most satisfying end to a film that I was otherwise continually intrigued by, and I can entirely understand the mixed reception that it's at, but I would say it's worth adding to your watch list and rolling the dice on it uh, when it shows up on your catch-up service of choice. Yeah, another film I kind of liked. Didn't quite hang together as well as I hoped it would in the end, but you know, it's it's good enough to give it a mild recommendation at least. Yeah, it's um, I think there are themes there, but they're so surface level, they're so obvious that like, I'm kind of disappointed that they're there. Yeah, <laughs> I'd rather it was just weird <laughs> because there's clearly like, like the suffocation of the monotony of suburbia, like we touch it, hence the consumerism and stuff, and like that's all really obvious stuff though. Yeah. Um, very, very on the nose. And I, I would pretty much like, isn't this weird? Yes, this is really weird. Without much explanation, I would kind of preferred that because it would be weird and creepy. The real stumbling block, though, I had for this film was like, why would they go anywhere near that creepy estate agent <laughs> at the beginning? Yes, that's a definite turn around, turn around, run away <laughs> very fast. Uh, well, you're a creepy bastard. I'm not going to follow you. <laughs> Yeah, this is a film. I enjoyed it. I, just, I think it's... Oh, I have a couple of other issues. Like, I like Jesse Eisenberg, but it's... Jesse Eisenberg is a what, gardener? Handyman? I mean, I, I know you shouldn't like, obey stereotypes and archetypes to say that certain people can't do certain types of jobs, but sometimes you need as a visual shorthand or a character shorthand, and I just I was struggling to buy Jesse Eisenberg doing that. Yeah. Also, given that it's not particularly important to anything other than to give him a shovel, which yes. could have been 
could have been addressed some other way. Uh, yes, not, not the most obvious thing. Like, yeah, did a bit of DIY with it, like it being his career. But yes, uh, that's probably it in terms of like issues. I like I wasn't quite sure about him, but also um, the problem is, which is like a deliberate thing. It's meant to be terrible, but that child. Oh God, Scott, the child. It's like. I don't feel good about myself that I've spent um, a good third of this film vividly imagining beating the crap out of a small boy, you know, because that child is creepy and terrifying and wrong. Yes. So wrong. <laughs> to be fair, that's the point. But yes, it's a it's a, a very strange and unsettling little child, as I suppose they all are. Indeed. Indeed. I think that there's something deeply unpleasant about that green it's also it's like had I um, rocked up in a housing state where every house was that colour, I'd be gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's not really the point of the film. It's like uh, you follow this creepy guy, and these are the houses you're taking you to. No, no, thank you. So I guess the message really is just don't follow the creepy guys. It's just as applicable to grown adults as it is to kids. So just bear that in mind. Just don't follow <laughs> creepy guys around. <laughs> Don't step into the van. Listen to DJ Bob Hoskins going mental in a dustbin. <laughs> so shall we crash onwards then to Just Mercy? Yes, a film that, while is the the other end of the the things that are the focus of certain current events, um, I would say is timely. But basically, when since seventeen seventy six has this not been timely? <laughs> yeah. This is based on a true story. It's about a young lawyer called Brian Stevenson, played by Michael B. Jordan, who, having graduated from Harvard, decides to dedicate his life to uh, working with, in particular, death row prisoners in the southern U.S. states, in this case, um, Georgia, I think, isn't it? No, Alabama, sorry, Alabama. Um, Oh, yeah, of course it's Alabama. Yes, (laughs) Alabama. Um, Worst of places. And... Yeah, he wants to give legal advice to people who never really got ad- um, adequate representation. This brings him into contact with a number of prisoners on death row, in particular Jamie Foxx's Walter Johnny D. McMillan, a man who had the temerity to have a relationship with a white woman, and then his reward for that was to have a crime of murder pinned upon him. One that he couldn't possibly have done. One which saw a whole house full, well, bus full, really, of eyewitnesses say that he didn't do it. Couldn't possibly have done it. But no, he's on death row waiting to be executed. It goes much the way you'd expect a film like this to go. It's based on a true story. So for the most part, actually, it goes quite well, which is nice. Uh, this <laughs> is the, uh, but it just highlights some of the injustices that people of colour in particular have suffered for many, many years, particularly in the US South, but all over the United States and other countries, of course. What sets it apart, perhaps, is that it's it's a bit less polemic than a lot of these films tend to be. It's not focusing on, like, stirring courtroom speeches, and there are a couple, but it's not. There's just a, a really great, quiet, central performance from Michael B. Jordan, just as this idealistic young lawyer, not letting him get thing, not letting things get him down, and, and immediately responding to every attempt to stop him with just renewed passion and enthusiasm to overcome it. A couple of noteworthy performances in it. Rafe Spall is quite wonderfully 
despicable as a spineless, sleazy, racist DA. Mm. It's really quite remarkable just how hateful he has made his character, <laughs> yeah. even within like the first 30 seconds of seeing him. But the real standout is Jamie Foxx. Has he been better than anything other than Ray? Probably not. Jamie Foxx very often is, well, loud yes. um, <laughs> in many, many different ways. This is a really sober, quiet performance from Jamie Foxx in which he's he's just like quietly seething throughout that you can see this rage uh, the injustice bubbling under but he also seems to have kind of given up to in terms of like ever getting any mercy or anything and it's just yeah it's a really powerful performance that honestly I didn't think he was capable of anymore because while I'm entertained by him in Baby Driver like that seems more like the kind of role I'm used to him in nowadays of like yeah Look at me, I'm Jamie Foxx. Look at me being Jamie Foxx while I am Jamie Foxx. Look at me, I am Jamie Foxx. You know? it, it does feel for a while like his volume dial's been broken. Uh, yep. It's been left at all the Jamie Foxx. Uh, yeah, this was definitely a bit of a bit of a change of pace uh, compared to his recent stuff, yeah. Yeah, so um, I'm just seeing like, young Brian just uh, meeting the families and like getting to know them and just like his level of calm assurance. And then, yeah, with the the counterpoint of this he's kind of resigned in that not that he like is accepting of his fate but resigned like this is the way it is you better be bloody special to be able to change this yeah yeah I mean I I think the whole thing really hinges on those two central performances though and they're great what struck me the thought that came to my head during this Scott though was that I would imagine that black actors in the United States are really sick of having these sorts of roles to play. Because this happens yeah. so often. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, cause, and you know why they're having these roles to play, because the stuff keeps happening. And there may be a case that some of them, they want to play these roles, you know, to highlight uh, an issue or something. But you've got to be sick of having these are the roles you get offered, you would imagine, no? Yes, you would think so, but I suppose until it stops being an issue, which sadly does not appear to be happening anytime soon, even regardless of what's uh, going on at the minute. Um, the whole Black Lives Matter thing is obviously very deeply intertwined with this. Um, you would still think that uh, it would be nice to move on and get to a nice post-racial uh, situation, but that's not going to happen anytime soon, as the kind of structural inequality and racism that is still present, as it was in the you know, during all this... Uh, court cases that we're talking about in Just Mercy and everything else that's going on still exist and show no immediate signs of being tackled. Um, so that's that's why there's so many protests around and they will be continuing for the foreseeable future. <laughs> uh, that is sadly just the way of the world. But um, yeah, hell of a good film. Um, I suppose I believe this should still be available free on pretty much everything that was kind of made uh, available freely, I believe, as part of the whole kind of response to the Black Lives Matter movement. So there's not too much point in reviewing it much further than to say that, yes, it's well worth looking at and you should do that. I echo everything you're saying there. Some very great performances, particularly Jamie Foxx, particularly um, Michael B. Jordan. And also it's remarkable enough in that this director has managed to get a performance from Tim Blake Nelson that is only about 0.8 Tim Blake Nelson, which (laughs) actually means that it works. (laughs) Yeah, I rather like Tim Blake Nelson. This is like, this no brother where art thou? 
Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's about it, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll be yeah. Ballad of Buster Scruggs because that's a kind of a very yeah. specific role. But yes, it's um, yeah. it's a toned down Tim Blake Nelson. Yeah. Uh, so this is an immaculately made film. Um, if you are going to bust out the critical hand, like in terms of its central story, this is nothing you've not seen before. But that's the point. <laughs> we, we apparently we need to keep telling the story until some actual change is happening so yes you've probably seen something about injustice very very close to this a good number of times before now and this is another example of it but again that's kind of why it's important to to keep it in mind yeah here's the thing that given just how unlikable i found her in captain marvel last year could have done with more v larson she kind of fades into the background in a film because that's just i feel that her role needed more i don't understand why they bothered putting that character in if they're not yeah, going to make it that one is it doesn't really have anything important to do yeah other than like <laughs> show a bit of solidarity at one point it's like yeah i'm not going to let the racists in this town push me about and stuff yeah but yeah i would have quite liked to have seen a bit more of that character yeah yeah um i mean the dangers it takes away from you would take away if either maybe michael b jordan's time with johnny d's family or Maybe some of the time with the death row inmate, the one who actually said, like, you know, I did the crime, but still yeah. should have had some representation. Yeah. Taken away from him, and that was kind of an important subplot to have in there. But yeah, it's it's a, feel, it's a character that needed more to justify being in it. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, um, powerful stuff. And I think because it is just, it's not the sort of, way that a lot of these films go it feels like it should be really kind of shouty and that, which is justified but it's not it's it's lower key than that and i quite appreciate that yeah um if we're finished scott will we move on to the new pablo larain film yes uh, that being emma and as much as i liked the last of his films what i done saw naruda i've not tracked down any of his other work i'd like to say it's because i'd fear they'd be more like post-mortem the other significantly less enjoyable film of his that i've seen but it is in reality simply my abject laziness which is the root of so many of my evils um so i was glad to see that you put the selection in front of me drew um although i knew nothing about the contents of it and to be honest i think that's absolutely the best way to approach this <laughs> film uh, so consider this as forewarning as even the most superficial recap will i think ruin this film uh, it's not that there's any major twists or turns in this film but the structure of this film for me is its genius and the way that unfolds for me was the most enjoyable thing about it so um the best analogy i can think of would be that if the story of our lead character, the spirited dancer Emma, played by Mariana de Girolamo, was a miniseries, then this film is episodes three, four, and five of that miniseries. <laughs> and the details of the earlier events, they're not hidden from you, uh, but you'll have to reconstruct them from the organic mentions of it as the story progresses. And also, I suppose, you'll have to write your own ending to the story as well. This has the sense of an ending and is structured accordingly. It's also plainly a state of affairs that's going to break apart just after the credits roll. So, to roll this up into a sentence while also not telling you very much that's not obvious in the first five minutes. Emma is in a tempestuous relationship with her choreographer, Gail Garcia Bernal's Gaston, uh, the most common flashpoint being the dealing uh, with the fallout of returning their adopted son, Pollo, to the system. Uh, Paul, not Pollo. Uh, <laughs> he's not a chicken. <laughs> he's not a chicken. Uh, Pollo Feliz, delicious. Um, yeah, 
pulled the system after he proved to be a bit of a handful, a decision that Emma now greatly regrets and now seeks to rectify by any means necessary. And I think that'll do you, to be honest. Uh, this is not a film that's overly dependent on the plot's through line anyway, as that's as much tied up with Emma's character as it is her actions. And what a character she is. Uh, forceful, driven, seductive, manipulative, a femme fatale, uh, particularly given her occasional flamethrower wielding, which in retrospect was certainly something that the reader was missing. It's a really well-crafted film, Lorraine's uh, and uh, writers Guillermo Calderon and Alejandro Moreno's parts, and one that credits its audience with a modicum of intelligence and assumes that they will be paying attention to it, which I kind of despair of having to laud as a positive point, but there's so many films that don't, you kind of have to, have to take what you can. Uh, so the supporting cast are entirely on point, although it's uh, Bernal and particularly the Guillermo that uh, deserve the plaudits for making this film a very captivating experience that I recommend incredibly highly. Uh, really enjoy this one. As I say, it's incredibly well structured. There's not really in retrospect, a great much, a great deal to it. If you were going to recap the whole plot by plot events, you'd get through it pretty quickly. But um, just the way this all unfolds and seeing exactly what's going on, uh, working out what's going on in Emma's mind, made for a really, really enjoyable watch. And I heartily enjoyed all of this. So yes, definitely get this on your to-watch lists. Uh, I have for a while now wanted to go back to Postmortem because the... Because you love barricades. (laughs) Yes, because I love barricades and brown. Um, (laughs) Because yeah, but what you mean? Lara- it's like, are we just missing something? Because these two ones have been great. So, <laughs> yes, the other Larine films I've seen have they've not all been great. I've not seen all of his stuff yet, but I've seen a lot. Um, no, with Gael Garcia Bernal, for instance, undecided on that at the moment. Actually, it's another right. one I need to rewatch. But um, Jackie is Jackie's a weird film. It's weirdly sterile, but I kind of think that's the point too. It's like right. that's her kind of encapsulated life inside the White House and after JFK's assassination and stuff. It's but fairly comfortably the best Natalie Portman performance I've ever seen. Right. And yeah, Nurida was my film of the year that year, twenty sixteen. That came out. I love Nurida. Um, yeah. So this is why I wanted to watch this for this episode because I've been waiting for it to come out for ages. It's only just recently become available for download and stuff. Um, and I'll watch Gael Garcia Bernal and anything. Sounds like you actually like this more than me, Scott, which is a surprise. I mean, and I really liked it, but it sounds like you really liked it. It's um, it's so weird that, that that central character is just captivating. Yeah. I don't like her. In the least, but, oh, no, um, um, no, not a, you know. For a while, we've been there's been a number of films over the past few months where we said, "Oh, I don't like any of the characters in this, and therefore this film's boring." And this is again, here's one: you don't, you're not going to like the central character of this film, but you're going to be interested in what she's doing. I'm going to guarantee that. I'll guarantee that much. Uh, yeah, yeah. She's. Um, I'm. I think there's probably a fairly good chance she's bipolar. <laughs> um, but there's a lot else going on with that character as well. Very striking looking too, to be in the middle of Valparaiso, um, with that bleach blonde hair and very, yeah. very pale skin. She really yeah. stands out. Just really visually interesting film. I'm sure there's lots can be read into the different, like, color, like, monochromatic color filters and various scenes too. I'm gonna yeah. Go back and I'll, um, think some more about those. It's just, she's a captivating character and everybody around her is brilliant as well. And again, I really, really like Gael, Gael Garcia Bernal. She's just this, she's a force of nature. Yeah. <laughs> and there are some kind of narrative leaps that actually get filled in later. Like, I'm wondering, how does she know where 
this boy is now. Yeah. And then also I'm wondering why she was doing what she was doing to these people. And then she explains later on why. But at the same time I'm thinking, but I, I know as soon as the credits end, this is all going to fall apart. Yeah. Right? It's like in the <laughs> next episode, as she says, Scott. But I'm like, how did it even get this far? Yeah. It's just the, the force of her personality is causing this to go on. And that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, there's like the point about two thirds of the way through. It's like, well, I'm just going to shag everybody now. Um, <laughs> and it does because, well, why not? Uh, <laughs> Seems to be working for her. Yeah. yeah it's like, she's, she says that to seduce one or two people. And then it's like, Nah, everybody. Everybody ever for me. Every character you've seen in this film that isn't a child and or related to her, basically, yeah. yeah. Why not fair game? Uh, it's uh I mean you may have a point, Scott, that it's probably best to go into this film not knowing much. Hmm. So maybe I should just stop there. It comes highly recommended from us both by the sounds of it. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, so um and I've been looking forward to this for a long time and I'm I'm glad that this wasn't a film that disappointed me. Very good, very good. Yes, shall we crash onwards to Richard Jewell? During the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta, a backpack full of nail-filled pipe bombs was left in a public area with the intention of causing much death and mutilation. That the actual toll was relatively minor was due principally to the actions of a security guard who noticed the backpack and insisted on treating it seriously. That security guard was 29-year-old Richard Jewell, played by Paul Walter Hauser, though I now think he was described as being 33 years old. I don't know why that weird change. But um, mm. anyway, uh, who was instantly lauded as a hero. Jewell had little opportunity to enjoy his time in the spotlight, though, as the ever-competent FBI decided that he fit the profile of a lone terrorist and began to build a case against him, though one with basically no evidence. In a particularly odious and unprofessional move, his status as a suspect is leaked to the press and the media tries to destroy Joe. After a belated awakening to the fact that the FBI are not his friends and that his rights are being treated as if they didn't exist, Joe calls Sam Rockwell's Watson Bryant, the only lawyer he knows and in fact the only person at one previous workplace that treated him with any dignity. Bryant begins to build a defence... Well, he would if there's anything to defend. More just proves that the FBI's case has as much substance as a breath, <laughs> but is continually hampered by the fact that wannabe cop Jewel insists on helping the law enforcement agents who are trying to send him to the electric chair until a thoroughly disillusioned Jewel finally stands up for himself and the FBI investigation into him is formally ended. Richard Jewel feels like a companion piece to director Clint Eastwood's earlier Sully, a solid drama about a hero turned suspect but in contrast to the 2016 film, which filled a 96-minute running time with about 76 minutes of content, there's plenty of meat this time around. It's not surprising that the director of Eastwood's calibre can attract such a talented cast, and Sam Rockwell and Kathy Bates are particularly compelling in their roles. But the revelation here is the relatively unknown Paul Walterhauser, probably best known prior to this for playing the Super duper extra, especially competent CIA trained hitman in Aitonia. Jewel <laughs> seems tailor made to be made fun of. A clown in the mould of Paul Blart or Seth Rogen's Ronnie in Observing Report. But Hauser portrays a remarkably sympathetic character. Foolish rather than stupid. It's easy to share Sam Rockwell's lawyer's frustration at his desire to help the FBI hang him, while at the same time appreciating his lifelong and unquestioning faith in law enforcement. 
while John Hamm's FBI agent seems unnecessarily antagonistic, most of the characters feel believable, and even if you know the outcome, it's a compelling tale. There is a serious black mark on this film, though, that must be addressed, and that is the seemingly entirely unfounded assertion that Olivia Wilde's Kathy Scruggs, the journalist who broke the story of Jewel being a suspect in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, offered sex for tips to FBI agents, specifically here John Hamm's Tom Shaw. Scruggs died in 2001, so can't defend herself, but it seems more than little hypocritical that a film that condemns the character assassination of a suspect would commit the same crime against this one reporter. That aside, Eastwood has shown time and again how efficient he can be as a storyteller and with well-realised characters. And so it is again here. Richard Jewell isn't a masterpiece, but it's a solidly entertaining drama with an excellent central performance. Yeah, that um, sex for stories uh, angle was why I'd put this into my bozo bin since it's been out and wasn't all that enthusiastic about catching up with it. Um, overall, I would say I did actually like the film, um, but I, I can't give it a pass on that. It is, as best as anyone can tell, entirely made up. And even if Olivia Wilde saying, oh, I did my research and I think it's true, it's like, well, you're an actress, not an actual journalist. <laughs> and yeah, that's it's pretty disgusting and also seems to kind of fit in with... It's a very Clint Eastwood politics kind of thing to do, especially given that... that journalist character is the one that is pretty much the focal point of actual disdain for the film it seems it goes out of its way to make that character odious for no reason and it seems like a very clint eastwood thing to do for no good reason and it only hurts the film doesn't really have anything to do with anything that's the actual central point of it which is the injustice that is served upon Richard Jewell by the FBI so why not make the FBI the actual bad guys in it uh, which to be fair, it does, but it should really be the actual system that's grinding him down that mm. is perhaps the point of the film, um, rather than this journalist. And I know it's, it's being done for dramatic effect to kind of have the whole media being on trial as well by reducing it to that one character, but it's not fair to do it by just assassinating the character of a dead woman. Yes, that pretty f- major point aside, uh, <laughs> the rest of it, I would say, uh, I agree completely, uh, really great acting performances by everyone. Always great to see Sam Rockwell Ham, as well as particularly odious Kathy Bates is great. Uh, but yeah, Paul Waterhouse are very, very sympathetic performance as well. Even when there's points where you're screaming at him going, all cops are bastards, haven't you realised this now? Stop doing yeah. this. Um, but uh, yeah, he is just so sympathetic and so so pure of motive. It's, uh, it's hard not to be on his side. And uh, yeah, overall, uh, you can't argue with the actual points that the film makes about the injustice and the, uh, the rush to judge him uh, in the court of public opinion as well before he could get his day in court, uh, which of course never came because the whole case was bollocks anyway. Uh, Yes, so overall, um, a film I did actually quite enjoy, but yes, with that one major black mark side. Yeah, I wouldn't, I'm quite looking forward to seeing Paul Waterhouse and something else too, because yeah. like I said, he really, it, it's a character set up to be a clown. Yeah. Um, an object of pity at best, and certainly the way it's played, it's so much better than that. It's, yeah. When you when he starts like almost hanging himself by the things he's saying to the FBI, he's like, yeah. "You're not saying, oh, what did you?" It's like, "Oh, please, please, you know, Richard, yeah. stop! Don't do that to yourself because you care about the character." Because, um, I mean, as I said, he's he, he's not stupid; he's just foolish and misguided. You know, he's yeah. he, he does finally um, use the brains he has to realize, "Oh, right, I see." 
<laughs> okay, <laughs> not my friends. And it's, I, I didn't actually realise, I, I knew he was vaguely familiar, but I couldn't think what it was. He was in the village, actually, it was I told you not so long ago. Yeah. Um, it's the main thing I knew him from, but he's really, really good. Yeah. Um, so I would like to see him more stuff. Yes. Um, apparently, there's a very minor role in the Five Bloods, which we'll get to the next couple of weeks, I would think. So interesting. Yeah. So, though, I mean, like, we have talked about a number of very good films so far in this podcast, and perhaps even an excellent, an excellent film. But none of those are, are, are the best films because none of them are the worst of films. Um, <laughs> So, what we're going to talk about now is, um, come on. Um, <laughs> That's right, it is Capone. Scott, that's me, come on. <laughs> yes, uh, Capone, uh, in which we follow Al Capone, who was apparently 48 when he died after a heart attack following a few years of ill health following complications from syphilis. This came as a slight surprise to me on checking, as Tom Hardy's portrayal here in Josh Trank's film has him look- looking closer to 80. This is, well, quite what this film is, is open to interpretation, I suppose, uh, but... We at least joined him in very poor, already brain-damaged health at his Florida mansion after his release from prison on compassionate grounds. Inasmuch as there's any plot to this, there's some mention of Capone having buried a few million dollars somewhere but can't quite remember where, with both the cops and his family wanting to find out where this probably imaginary stash is er, stashed. However, <laughs> however, saying that this is in any way relevant to what's going on in Capone would be entirely misleading. Most of this film, and certainly the bulk of the memorable bits you'd want to make a gif out of, happens inside Capone's misfiring grey matter, and it is bonkers, mainly by containing a Tom Hardy performance where he looks just as confused as baffled by everything that's going on as the audience does. I'm not sure there's a lot of point in recapping it further, other than to say that it features a confused Capone chomping cigars as cigar replacements, shuffling through a Prohibition-era party to, to confusedly join Louis Armstrong on stage, and later on, looking like a bloated corpse, clad in a dressing gown and nappies shuffling around on a murder rampage with a gold-plated Tommy gun. <laughs> on the one hand, you could argue that any cinematic portrayal of Capone is an act of glorification, so I suppose that's why he's showing undergoing at least three rapid, unscheduled bowel evacuation events. On the other hand, I suppose you could see it as making fun of the mentally ill, but it's Al Capone, so who cares? Hot take, Al Capone was bad. Josh Trank, of course, was last seen five years ago making The Fantastic Four and then having the studio decide to remake most of it, uh, by all accounts, so perhaps that festival of blandness should not be held against them. After all, Capone is certainly a lot more memorable. It's also absolutely <laughs> awful, with with Hardy putting in his most laughable performance to date, like bait off Batman had he been dozed with quaaludes and left in salty water for a decade. It's never less than hypnotically abysmal, and combined with the Poundland Lynchian feel of these dream sequences, this film is never less Less than dreadfully entertaining. The best worst film I've seen in a while. Highly recommended for being atrocious. It's awful. It, it's entertainingly dreadful and dreadfully entertaining. It's <laughs> yes. I laughed I so know. much, Drew. I laughed so much. What are they doing with this film? What was the meaning of it? Why have they done anything that's happening in this film? Why is Matt Dillon chopping his eyeballs out and presenting them to... What's going on? You could just stop at why, Scott. Um, <laughs> this film, I, I don't understand what this film's trying to do or say because if it's all like invented stuff in Al Capone's head, it doesn't tell you anything about his character. That you've clearly invented that whole cloth. Yes. Um, and you, not that anybody could know anyway, like from you from interview or anything. 
it's the weirdest damn film. I think. <laughs> what is going on? How do I, you pitch this? <laughs> who 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 signs off in this pitch and goes, yeah, yeah, that's probably about right. Nappies, gold plated Tommy gun, yeah, yeah, on board. Here's a few million cigar. quid. <laughs> yeah, why? Um, yeah, presumably this is one of those films where you know Tom Hardy uh, did it to to prove that he is, as Craig put it in our Slack channel last night, acting TM. Yes, look at my uh, range. <laughs> yes, um, I can. Defecate myself. Yes. I can mumble both coherently and incoherently. <laughs> it's the weirdest film, as I said. Um, I don't understand the point of it. It's not interesting. It's not giving any insight into a character. It's not giving any insight into the disease. It's it's maybe giving insight into Josh Trank. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it's awful, but I'm kind of glad I watched it because it was just so ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> like, I'm not going to say it's in any way good, but I probably enjoyed it more than any other film we spoke about today. It's just absolutely bafflingly nuts and dreadful. And, uh, yeah, it's it's garbage, but it's entertaining. <laughs> I certainly didn't enjoy it that much, but it, uh, it's... I mean, you're already um, setting yourself up at a disadvantage by being about Al Capone. Um, <laughs> but Al Capone's a fascinating character, and so therefore can be really interesting, like the... The obvious go-to, I think, is Robert De Niro and the Untouchables. Hmm. So that's like charismatic gangster um, who's the foil for our hero. And then you've got uh, Stephen Graham's portrayal of Al Capone in Boardwalk Empire, which I actually quite like. I've come to like Stephen Graham a bit more in recent years. And then there's this, who is not noticeably Al Capone in any way, shape or form. <laughs> And apparently it's even important that they don't call him Al. I don't <laughs> understand that. We don't I don't understand a lot of things that's happening in this film, Drew. All marriages into each other. Talking of understanding and things happening in film, Scott, here's the big problem I have with this film. Like, I don't think Josh Trank, under, Josh Trank understands how films work. Because it's one thing to have the thing seemingly happening inside Tom Hardy's head. But things that are seen from the point of view of other characters are also partly happening inside his head. <laughs> and it doesn't make any sense. Like, when Matt Dillon appears at the first point, it's like, well, I was, didn't Linda Cardellini phone him? So how is it suddenly a um, figment of Al Capone's imagination? Yeah. <laughs> it, it doesn't make any sense. And there's a few bits like that. It's like, you know, like, you're going to have to, when you, you're showing it from a different person's point of view, you can't have it be somebody else's... Oh no! It's it's really bad. It's a badly made film, badly acted. Um, I mean, I feel sorry for people like Linda Cardellini because they give it their best, right? <laughs> what Josh Trank and Tom Hardy thought they were doing together, I have no idea. It's a it's a glorious mess of a film. I'm delighted that they're doing whatever the hell it is they're doing because <laughs> I laughed my ass off. <laughs> it's it's an awful, awful film. <laughs> what? I cannot fathom why any decision that was made in this film is. I mean, it's all the more baffling when you think of a film like this where there was surely some discussion going on as to why anyone would play anything like it's happening, why anything that's happening would happen the way that it happens. How those discussions got to the point of this end product is absolutely baffling to me and I love it <laughs> because I cannot imagine the madness that's on display here coming from any sort of 
position of sanity. Um, this this has got to be just some drug-induced nightmare of everyone involved. And uh, yes, it's nuts. It's stupid. I hate it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to watch this again, but I, I can imagine getting quite a lot of use out of gifts based on certain scenes in this film. <laughs> yes. Um, a, a number of ridiculously startled expressions on um, a syphilitic sore infected face of Al Capone and Tom Hardy it's, this is um, well this is now a thing that I have seen but unlike other things that I have seen I don't think I'll ever be forgetting this one yes and that's maybe that's the point. Whether it's good or bad, it's at least memorable. Uh, and to be clear, when we say whether it's good or bad, we mean it's bad. It is bad. <laughs> I guess that will wrap us up for the day. Thanks very much for your attention. Uh, we'll be back soon enough with another podcast. If you would like to get in touch with us on for this or any other reason, then do so uh, on Twitter's at FunsOnFilm, uh, podcast at FunsOnFilm.com on the email or Facebook.com slash FunsOnFilm. Uh, until next time, take care of yourself and each other, and I'll bid you adieu. I'm sure that Drew will do too. Fairly well. Fairly well.